When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. It's The Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's episode, where we're talking about the origins of Gaza, we're going to explore what the archaeology unearthed in the Gaza Strip had so far revealed about the people who lived in this area of the world in antiquity. Now, on The Ancients, we're well aware of the current conflict and the horrors that have defined it so far. But at this time, when news feeds across the world are filled with upsetting stories from both sides of the war, where we want to highlight the extraordinary archaeology and ancient history that the Gaza Strip possesses and is now vulnerable to destruction. Because Gaza has not become a contested zone in recent history, that part of its story stretches back more than 3,000 years into prehistory to the time of the Bronze Age. And we know this thanks to excavations and surveys that have been done in the Gaza Strip over the past century. These missions have revealed how the people who lived in this area of the world more than 3,000 years ago were part of an interconnected Bronze Age world, having close contacts with Egyptians, Canaanites, Mycenaeans, Cypriots, Hittites and more, evidenced through an incredible array of artefacts that have been unearthed, from Egyptian-influenced mummy mask coffins to Cypriot pottery. And yet, there is still so much about Gaza's ancient history that remains shrouded in mystery. So in this episode, we're shining a light on Gaza's archaeology and what it has revealed so far about this region in antiquity. Our guest is Professor Louise Steele from the University of Wales Trinity St. David, who was part of a team that excavated in the Gaza Strip in the late 1990s. This was a really eye-opening episode. I really do hope you enjoy it. And here's Louise. Louise, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're more than welcome. Now, the area of Gaza, people have lived in this area for thousands of years. It's been so significant for so many civilizations. This area of the Mediterranean, it has a very rich ancient history and archaeology. It has indeed. And it's, I think, worth thinking right from the beginning, it's always been a contested landscape. That's something that uh, when I was working in Gaza many years ago, back in the 1990s, I organised with my colleague, Joe Clark, we organised an illustrated history of Gaza. 
which was funded by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, hosted by the British Council. And it was actually quite a depressing litany of invasion, going right the way back to the Egyptians. So the Egyptians of the reign of Thutmose III, year 22 of his reign, the Assyrians in the 8th century, the Babylonians in the 7th century, Alexander the Great, the Romans, you name it, (laughs) the Ottomans, they all came, they all tramped over it. So a very rich, long history. A very rich, long history. And you mentioned names like Tutmosis III there. So going back beyond the first millennium BC, which is where we're going to start. I mean, to learn about Gaza's very early history, what types of sources do you have available as an archaeologist today? It's actually quite challenging because it's a landscape which is repeatedly being covered by sand dunes. So in terms of field walking the landscape, it was actually quite difficult. It just depends as the sand blows on and blows off uh, what's exposed. So in terms of what's visible on the ground, it's really looking around the area of the Wadi Gaza and other river systems to see what's readily visible. In terms of written sources, the earliest documentation is probably from the reign of Thutmosis III. And he uh, wrote his annals, which are in the temple, I think, Karnak, and he he wrote his annals and and recorded there. There's other documents which mention a temple at a place called Gadet, which is assumed to be Gaza. And the Egyptians mention Gaza and other places, Saruhen, in their texts. But there's certainly not that much on the ground in Israel or Palestine in that part of the world. So it's it's all external, what other people write about it. And then the Assyrians mention it because they invaded it. The Babylonians mention it because they invaded it. And I think it's really only once you hit the Greco-Roman period and you get people like Josephus writing about it. I suppose also I've got the biblical sources and uh, Samson and Delilah. So yes, uh, there are other, you know, sort of the Philistines and... But again, always people writing from outside about these people who they're conquering or they're fighting against or they're controlling. So we don't really hear their voice from ancient sources, written sources. It's only really the material record which allows the ancient Gazans to speak for themselves. You mentioned names there such as the Wadi Gaza and, of course, these sand dunes. When picturing this area of the world today, of the Near East, I mean, If you were there thousands of years ago, what made this particular area such an attractive place to settle? Well, the main thing, the primary thing is the Wadi Gaza, which still has water running in it. So when we visited and we'd be working maybe late spring or going there in the autumn, there was water running in the Wadi Gaza. And it's a really fertile landscape. You know, even today, a lot of farming activity going on there and a lot of farming produce being exported from Gaza to the rest of the world. So it's very, very rich and fertile. It's also, because of its geographical position, it's really important. It sort of links together the African land mass. It's at the end what's known as the Ways of Horus, which is the land route from northern Egypt, the Nile Delta, up to the Wadi Gaza. So it joins Africa and Southwest Asia together. And with the Mediterranean Sea then, uh, brings in the Mediterranean uh, populations, the the people of Cyprus, and later on Greece and Rome. So it's, I think it's really more its position. It's really well placed as a communication nexus. Right, because as you highlight there, it's not just a place that is contested over time and time again, 
but it is also this place of intense cultural contact of these trade connections, whether it's with the Mediterranean world or further east or to the south. Absolutely. And these trade routes are really, really important in antiquity. The, the first people to excavate in the 1990s was um, a team from the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem, and they were excavating the ancient port of Gaza, a place called Balakia. And obviously right on the coast because it's the ancient port. And there are links there. there were, it's dating to probably the 5th century BC, 5th, 6th century BC. And there's lots of evidence for trade and exchange with the wider Mediterranean world. And textual sources tell us in the Greco-Roman period, it was important for spices. It was important for um, perfumes. So lots of luxury, luxurious goods from the exotic East traveling into the Mediterranean world and things coming up from Egypt, going into what we call the Levant today into Syria, Palestine. But also, yeah, other things, it is very close to Sinai and you've got uh, rich turquoise resources there and copper resources. So so there's lots of stuff on, on the doorstep and stuff that we found when we were doing survey at the cycle del Morocco um, was a lot of luxurious things like alabaster and carnelian and uh, mother of pearl, which is obviously being transported over long distances and coming through this part of the world. Well, I'd love to ask about your work at El Morocco in a bit of time, but before we get there, there are a couple of other sites. If we almost go through it's chronologically the story of Gaza and it's you know thousands of years ago. If we go, say, more than 5,000 years ago to the 4th millennium BC, do we know much about the Gaza region, the people who lived in this area that long ago, maybe just as the Bronze Age is beginning? We're getting little, tiny little hints about what's going on there. So I worked there in in Gaza in the 1990s, and it was an exciting time. There was a a lot of promise of archaeological riches coming up from the ground. And one of the most important sites, I think, to be excavated there was a site called Telsakan, which means the, the Mound of Ash. And it wasn't very far from where I ended up working. It was uh, about 500 metres north of the Wadi Gaza. And it was an early Bronze Age settlement. And the earliest evidence of activity there dates to what Egyptians would call Dynasty Zero. So it's just before the unification of Egypt. It's just before Egypt becomes the Egypt that we know. And in Near Eastern terms, we would be looking at the early Bronze one period, and there's evidence for establishment of an Egyptian, what's called an Egyptian colony. There was a, an Egyptian building established there. It, it was a massive building. You know, the architecture was Egyptian. It was used, built using mud brick. It was very well protected. Um, there's an Egyptian stronghold. And this is one of just a series that some of the earliest pharaohs or proto-pharaohs, some of the earliest rulers of probably northern Egypt were establishing in what is modern-day Israel and Palestine, a series of these fortified locations. And a lot of the pottery was Egyptian or Egyptianizing, maybe made locally, but Egyptian pottery. And the really, really exciting thing is you get little scraps of Egyptian writing, what's known as a serech, which is the earliest way the Egyptian kings wrote their names. You have a little palace facade, and inside the palace facade, there's a little name, the Egyptian ruler's name. 
And when you get into Dynasty 1, there's usually a little horse sitting on top of it, a little falcon sitting on top. That's the first king's name. We know the horse name. And there are a few of these Sereks. I think there's about five or six of them from Telesakhan, which show this very, very early phase where the Egyptians, are, sort of the Egyptian kingship is being established. But really, probably just before we get to Dynasty 1, and then there is one, the clincher is there's one which looks like it's the name of King Nama. And Nama is the king who, famous for his palate, who's the king who's supposed to have unified Upper and Lower Egypt. And what these are doing, these are marks on pottery, and it's primarily on wine jars. So it's a trade of wine between Egypt and Palestine. And it's showing that it's a royal trade, that there's royal control over that. So you've got these wine jars and these fortified settlements, and it's absolutely fascinating. But it's just a tantalizing glimpse, you know, what the locals were doing there, who the locals were, what, how they lived. That isn't clear. We don't know. Presumably there were people there. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to fortify against them. <laughs> but to kind of add a bit more to that, so this area... Before Manetho's 30 dynasties, before the creation of iconic monuments like the Great Pyramid of Giza, you have this archaeological evidence in the area of Gaza that shows an Egyptian influence there. That is absolutely mind-blowing from this archaeology. Yeah, absolutely. It's so amazing. It is published, which is fantastic, but it's just this little hint of this very, very early occupation. There is another site nearby Gaza, a site called Tarikh Bene, but that's, again, not much has been done there. I think it's just outside the Gaza Strip, and it, again, shows this very, very early phase of occupation and maybe a little bit of what the local populace, how they lived. So if this is some of the earliest archaeology that we currently know of, you mentioned how the local people at that time, it's unclear who they were. When do we start getting more of an idea of who the local people are that live in this area? So the first locals that we see are still at the same site, but the Egyptian stronghold is abandoned. And there appears to be, I just say it appears to be because obviously it hasn't been shown in excavation, a long period of abandonment, a long period of nothing happening there, which is interesting. Is it because people remember it being an Egyptian site or is it just not, you know, they're just living somewhere else very close by and we just haven't picked it up archaeologically. But in early Bronze three, so probably moving towards the mid, mid to the later part of the third millennium BC, we see the establishment of a Canaanite stronghold or a local stronghold, a type of fortified town in that part of the world, which looks very similar to other early Bronze three fortified settlements in the southern Levant. So the same, you know, sort of a densely occupied settlement, massive fortification walls. I think there's evidence of a little streetway, but we don't know much about them, but we know that there's something there. But again, the sense of them being fortified, again, you know, sort of maybe a slightly difficult place to live, but also fortifications projects a message maybe a lot of symbolic competition between whoever is living there and the nearby settlements. So yeah, we've got little glimpses of them, but these are just little snapshots, you know, just tiny. It's not a fully excavated site. You're just getting little test trenches, really. And forgive my ignorance, but who are the Canaanites? Ah, no, that's a good question. Whether or not these people are the Canaanites is another matter. We know a bit of slate of hand there, but um, the Canaanites are what we call the, the Bronze Age population of 
Syria, Palestine, maybe more in the middle and late Bronze Age, more the second millennium BC. We don't really necessarily know if you can extrapolate that back to the third millennium. This is a place where terminology is problematic. <laughs> so um, Canaanites are sort of quite a nice, safe term, but it's not necessarily what they would call themselves. Well, it's still interesting, whoever these local people were, how even this far back, as you say, we have fortifications visible from these trenches that have been dug so far, and no doubt more hopefully will be done in the future. But as we move on, as we go later into the Bronze Age, we're already at the third millennium BC, but this is when we start to see new sites emerging as the preeminent centres. And then I've got my notes, places like Tel Al-Ajul and El Moraka. Now, if we talk about the former first, please correct me if I've got the pronunciation wrong, but what is the site of Tel Al-Ajul? Uh, Tel Al-Ajul is absolutely the most fantastic site. This is one of the richest sites in the Levant, and it is sadly quite a complicated site. It was excavated in the 1930s by Flinders Petrie. Uh, so, you know, a great name in archaeology went there. He spent about four or five years excavating there. Uh, apparently a bit of a tyrant as well. Got used, used to get cross with his excavation team for playing jazz music. There's all sorts of lovely stories. He had a policy of he'd keep an eye on the price of gold in the times. And if they found gold, he'd pay them the value of the gold. So I think that's probably one of the reasons Kalalajul stands out as being one of the richest Canaanite settlements or one of the richest Bronze Age settlements that's been excavated in the region. It stands out in particular for its gold. If you want to see some, there's some in the British Museum. So, you know, there's some close at hand. There's plenty of material from Tel Olajul in numerous museums in the UK, as well as in the Rockefeller Museum and, and other places in Israel and um, Palestine. So, it stands out for that reason. It, it's also, again, I think Tel Olajul stands out because it was such an important trading centre. So um, it was involved in quite a high level trade with Cyprus. I think the greatest quantity of Cypriot pottery imported to the Near East is found at Tel Olajul. Really, really rich in from the later Middle Bronze Age into the earlier part of the Late Bronze Age, large quantities of Cypriot pottery, which again is one of the key things. It is a bit of a nightmare site to make sense of. It is published, but there are problems with Petrie's publication. There is a plan of, of Tel Olajul, which was done um, much later by Olga Tufnell, who was one of the people who worked at the site. But there are there's a, a missing area, Area C. Nobody knows what happened in Area C or where it is. Um, but we know it existed because there's material from Area C, which is in the Institute of Archaeology in London and, and other places. So it, it's very, very problematic trying to decipher what it was that his record keeping wasn't the best there. And it's very problematic. There's a, a team based in the Institute of Archaeology who've been trying over many years to make sense of what they've got. And they've done some fantastic work. But there's, you know, more questions. But it's such a fantastic site, though. It's probably my favourite site in the Levant. Just amazing. I mean, absolutely. What an enigma, because I was going to ask, it seems time and time again, when someone mentions this site, the word palace is bounded about. And of course, this is the Bronze Age. You've also got the Mycenaeans and the Minoans and their great administrative centres being these palaces. But it sounds to what you're saying there's not enough evidence just yet to come to those assumptions that they were administrative centres? Is yeah, that still out? That's a really good question. And um, this is something that archaeologists are working on at the moment, not just in at Tel Al-Ajul, but other sites in Israel and the surrounding area. So 
Flinders Petrie identified a series of five structures and built in the same part of the site, which he identified as palaces. The first of these, or the earliest of these, which is a Middle Bronze Age structure, is commonly accepted as being a palace, but there's a bit of a debate at the moment, just on a wider level, as to what a palace actually is. You know, there's a lot of terminology that archaeologists use or have used, sort of unthinkingly, which is increasingly being seen to be problematic. This is a large structure. It's a monumental structure. It's got a fabulous architecture. Um, there's a, a lovely placid bathroom in it. So, you know, it's sort of a nice sort of standard of living. It seems that a lot of the gold comes from the first palace. But, you know, again, there's lots of problems with Petrie and Harry attributed material to certain parts of the site. Um, but the first one is accepted as being a palace, but whether or not palaces were administrative structures is seen as being a problem. And this isn't just Tel El Azul, as um, other sites being excavated at the moment in, in other areas like Tel Cabri, where they've got a similar sort of problem. You've got monumental buildings, are obviously very wealthy, but whether or not they administered a wider area or whether they're just sort of bringing in their own estates, so there's no administrative documentation, which is interesting. But there are links with Egypt again. So Egypt pops up again, not necessarily actually in the palace, but in so there's a, a courtyard cemetery, which is associated with the first palace, whether or not it predates or is about the same date. Again, there's a issues of stratigraphy and how it's been recorded, but lots of scarabs coming from there, but not from the palace itself. So, But that still feels like something that will continue as we go more and more into Gaza's ancient history, that connection with Egypt, as we'll see. Hey folks, since you're a fan of history, you clearly want to understand how we've ended up with the world that we have. Well, I'd like to tell you about my show. It's called Dan Snow's History Hit. And on that show, you get a daily dose of history and the stories that really explain just about everything that's ever happened. If you want to know the origin stories of the cities we inhabit, what's in our kitchen cupboards, why we've always been drawn to dictators, the deep history that explains what's going on, for example, in the Middle East, well, we've got you covered. And if you'd rather be regaled with dramatic tales of powerful empires, we do that too. Get a little bit smarter every day with Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. If we stay in the mid-Bronze Age for a bit longer, so we've got Tel Al-Ajul, but we've also got, not too far away, this other site that you mentioned earlier, and we're going to explore it now, First of all, in the Mid-Bronze Age, El Magraca. It seems to be important at the same time as Tel Al-Ajul. Yeah, definitely. Um, El Magraca is the site that I and my colleague Joe Clark excavated in conjunction with the then Palestinian Antiquities Authority. And I'll come on to the excavation in a bit. We also did a bit of survey in the adjacent fields. El Magraca was found in the mid-1990s because some sand dunes had been cleared away and a lot of archaeological material, and I'll keep the really exciting stuff for a little bit, but a lot of archaeological material of the Bronze Age popped up, including pottery. And in, in survey in sort of adjacent fields, we found a lot of Middle Bronze Age pottery um, and the lower levels that we excavated were Middle Bronze Age as well. So I'll leave the late Bronze Age as you said later, but we 
did find a series of quite massive pits. And in these pits, we found some really interesting material, lots of beautiful Middle Bronze Age pottery, quite fine sort of stuff you'd associate with feasting. And in one of the pits, we also found a little um, cylinder seal, which Dominique Collon from the British Museum studied for us. And it was identified as an old Assyrian cylinder seal. So links going right up to northern Mesopotamia and Assyria. So so absolutely fascinating little things. We did also find some clay ceilings, which appear to be associated with the pit. So maybe for the Middle Bronze Age. Whether or not they actually said anything meaningful or not is another matter, but definitely you have things which look like the impressions made by scarabs with signs on them. So this is maybe the first evidence we've got of some sort of administrative activity in that part of the world. But just a couple of them. They are published, so they are available for for people to look at. But uh, yes, it's just little scraps of them. But it's amazing how even from these little scraps, you get such a valuable insight into the extensive trade contacts that this region, that the Gaza region had with, you know, further east and Egypt and the Mediterranean world, even as far back as the early to mid second millennium BC. Now you mentioned that there was some exciting stuff around the later Bronze Age. So let's go forward. Let's move this chronology on. Let's get to the later second millennium BC. So really the time of the late Bronze Age. Now, first of all, set the scene. The situation in the southeast Mediterranean at that time, you're seeing the rise of a great power in Egypt. Absolutely. And I think this is really fundamental for understanding what happens in Gaza, because following the collapse of the Middle Kingdom in Egypt, Egypt becomes disunified again. Um, There are lots of smaller kingdoms. And in the area of the Delta, we see what looks like a Canaanite or an Asiatic ruling population moving in who later Greeks call the Hyksos. So this is how we know them. And so we've got this Hyksos population in the Delta. And in the later years of the Middle Bronze Age, there's lots of links with Cyprus and with Gaza. Um, We've tell all Israel specifically in the sort of horse burials, both in Israel and in the Hyksos capital. And then at some point, the Thebans emerge as a really important powerhouse and they defeat the, the Hyksos. They expel them from Egypt and they establish the new kingdom. So it's the 17th dynasty rulers of Thebes kick out the Hyksos when they establish the, the new kingdom of Egypt to reunify Egypt. It's the 18th dynasty, which is the dynasty that really everyone knows and loves. Um, and they expel the Hyksos. And then they, they've sort of got this problematic Asiatic population north of them, immediately north. And there's sort of this threat of people from Palestine having come down in and, and occupied part of Egypt. And I think that is part of why we really do see the first expansion of the Egyptian empire. So the Tutmosis the first is one of the first to go north. He goes and attacks various places. One of the places that gets attacked is a place called Saruhen, which we know is where the Hyksos established themselves. We don't know where Saruhen was. It's been suggested it was Israel. So there's this sort of really interesting phase of contact and destruction Telelizul does survive. There's sort of late Bronze Age activity at Telelizul, and there's a couple of later fortified buildings, which Pichucal palaces, which date to this period. But the place which I think is really interesting, am I allowed to go back to El Maraca yet? That's the interesting bit. We can indeed go to El Maraca now because 
What is this really interesting archaeology that has been earthed that dates to this time? Yeah, well, this is why El Maraca absolutely snapped out to us and why we knew we had to go and work there. Associated with late Bronze Age pottery on the surface, the um, Palestinian authorities found a series of terracotta cones. They weren't complete, so it's just the 10 centimetres from probably a, a final logic would have measured about 30 centimetres. It's just the, the round flat end of the cone, um, not the pointy bits. And these cones were all stamped with the throne name of the Egyptian ruler Tutmosis III. Uh, so there are two stamps, one on the round face of the cone and one on the upper edge of the cone. And... These are unique in the Near East. There's nothing that compares to them. And initially, we thought, well, this has to relate to Thutmose III's activity in the area, dating to year 22 of his reign, where he famously comes and he he conquers Gaza. So we thought, yeah, we've got something which actually puts him on the ground there. So that was what we went to look at. And we worked with an American conservator who restored the cones and sort of preserved them and stabilised them. And we found a couple of cone fragments in survey. And then when we were excavating, when we were excavating the late Bronze Age levels, we found numerous tiny little scraps and fragments of cones. So the ones that, you know, the I think there's about 20 that had been found prior to excavation. They're, those are all the big ones. Um, and we just found little fragments of them mixed up in the matrix above the surface. Mixed up also in the same layer was a series of bronze arrowheads, which is sort of quite interesting as well. So that was that's quite fun to look at. But the when we started really looking at them, we noticed that there were a couple of cones which had the cartouche or the throne name, not of Thutmose III, but of Hatshepsut, who is famously his aunt who they had a co-regency and when she died, he very famously obliterated her name. So the fact that her name wasn't obliterated suggests that this dates to their co-regency rather than year 22 of his reign. So it suggests that the Egyptians are doing something there when Hatshepsut was still around, but there's far more Thutmose III names than, than Hatshepsut. But the other thing that was really important was having Hatshepsut actually demonstrates that this was contemporary with Thutmose III because his name turns up a lot. You know, he's one of the Egyptian pharaohs whose name can't really be used to date closely because it has a huge cachet and turns up in much, much later contexts. But Hedwin Hatshepsut says, yeah, this is it. We're in the 15th century of these rulers. And he said these are massive names from ancient Egyptian history that you found here. I'd like to ask a bit more about the cones themselves. Now, are they exactly identical to cones that have been discovered in Egypt or do they seem to have some local variation adaptations to them? Yeah, these seem to be a local adaptation of something. The closest parallel to them are Egyptian funerary cones. And these are clay cones, which was on the flat circular surface of them there'd be a, a bibliography or sort of a, a mini bio, I suppose, of an important 
Egyptian nobleman who'd have a key role in the Egyptian royal court. These are very typical of Thebes in the 18th dynasty. And what they did was they actually used these, they set them up around the entrance into the tomb and, and they were very much sort of telling us about that nobleman. So the, in terms of the actual shape of them, it looks the same, but ours are different because we haven't, all we've got is the royal name. And also we've got a slight difference in that ours are being marked differently. They've been marked on the round surface, but also perpendicular to that on the top surface of the comb. And we don't know if they had a funerary function or if they had some other function. We think they were used to mark a building. And the interesting thing is that they're all broken off at exactly the same sort of length of around about 10 centimetres. So it looks like they've all been, you know, just topped off the front of a building. And and the theory came up in the end was that these had all been dumped in a certain place because a building had been dismantled or knocked down and they'd be just been dumped in this setting for whatever reason. And the most logical thing seems to be that even if you couldn't read hieroglyphs, you'd recognise the king's name. So it's a sort of a, a very simple way of demonstrating Egyptian royal authority, but maybe not more than that. So they seem to be drawing upon an Egyptian custom, an Egyptian high status practice, whether it's an Egyptian doing it, but sort of simplifying it for a local audience, or whether it's a Canaanite who went to Thebes and thought, well, that's interesting, but couldn't really get anyone to invite anything other than Tutmosis III's name and Hatshepsut's, interestingly, is another matter. It's absolutely fascinating. We've sort of gone around in circles trying to make sense of why they were doing that. And I, I think it's just saying Egyptian power. Very much showing Egyptian power and influence, isn't it? And I love that. We still don't know about whether it was an Egyptian official or a Canaanite figure who travelled who owned these cones, but it's still fascinating that you found them in that context. We've got to talk about these coffins and this cemetery of Deir el-Bala, don't we? Because this, we've kind of saved it to kind of wrap up this episode because they are absolutely stunning. What is, first of all, this site of Deir el-Bala? This is an amazing site, which was first discovered or sort of came to people's notice in the Seven Days War of 1967. And then Trudy Dotan, an Israeli archaeologist, went back in the 80s and she excavated the site. She got on very well with the local Bedouin population. They, you know, there was a very, very good relationship between them, which I think was very interesting. And, and she was hoping before her death, I, I remember talking to her that she wanted to return a lot of the material to Gaza. I don't think that ever happened, but that, that was something that was seen as being an eventual outcome. So Darho Balar, there are two parts of the site. One, there's a settlement, and the settlement is worth mentioning because um, there's an important pottery workshop there, a massive pit or, you know, sort of, crater dug into the ground to extract clay um, and a series of kilns and then the the pit got filled up with the ash from the kilns and broken pottery and things initially that had been interpreted as a large pool from a, a large residential structure and sadly it's clay pit so it's not so exciting actually no i think it is exciting it's, it's lovely to think about how people made stuff and where they're getting stuff and, and where they're working but there was a large egyptian or Egyptianizing building there. And then there's a slightly later in the 13th, 12th century 
There is an Egyptianizing fortified building there, which looks a bit like Egyptian military structures, not forts, but sort of Egyptian residences that you see elsewhere in places like Megiddo and Abahov uh, and other places sort of further north. So there seems to be some evidence for Egyptian administration there. And then you've got the cemetery. And the cemetery, as you say, is fabulous. You've got these amazing coffins, which are all made out of local clay. They were fired locally. Some of them look very Egyptian, you know, very Egyptian. You've got the lovely wig and you've got these crossed hands in front. And some of them have a sort of stranger look. They It's sort of taken an idea, but maybe not the same skill in making them or maybe trying to present a different type of face. So you've got these two very different types of coffins. And these were buried in shallow pits in the ground. There were sort of storage pots put near the head of them. But they're fascinating because they look Egyptian, especially the very Egyptian ones. And there are parallels from northern Egypt of these clay coffins. Um, there are also parallels slightly later further north in the Levant from sites with strong Egyptian links of these clay coffins. And they've tended to be accepted as the burial place of Egyptians who were um, stationed in the Levant and you know, military officials or other officials. There are sort of problems with the Dar al-Balah ones, and I don't quite buy that. I see this as a sort of a, a mix of populations. I think there's some, when you start teasing out what's buried with them, you get sort of a wonderful thing. So there might be one or two people buried in a coffin, which doesn't sound very Egyptian. We don't have any evidence for mummification. You've got skeletons. You don't have any evidence of wrappings of mummies or the sort of things that you'd expect to see, little amulets and things, sort of, which would be wrapped in, in the linen or the heart scarab. There's only one Yushabti from these burials, uh, whereas in other sites further north, you get more Yushabti. And yeah, I think an Egyptian would want a Yushabti, probably, and no canopic jars. You know, so a lot of the stuff that Egyptians would want aren't there, but there's definitely knowledge of Egyptian practices. And there is a lot of jewellery, gold and carnelian jewellery, some of which is Egyptian um, and some of which is Canaanite. And the pottery is a wonderful mix of local pottery, some Egyptian slash Egyptianizing pottery and Cypriot and Mycenaean imports. So it's exactly the sort of thing you'd expect to see in the Southern Levant, sort of a mix of pottery, except with this Egyptian overlay. And you also get some amazing bronze vessels as a bronze wine set, which is an Egyptian custom. So the Egyptians would make wine and they'd strain it through what looks like a, a giant sieve or a strainer into a bowl um, and they'd drink out of a stemmed cup. So there are examples of those. And there are also lovely lotus jugs and, and lotus bowls, which again have Egyptian antecedents. So there's a lot of Egyptian elite material culture there. Well, there's a lovely um, swimming woman, a cosmetic bowl and a lotus vase, you know, chalice and beautiful material. They are absolutely astonishing. And as you say, at the same time, I do like this idea because you see it with other empires as well. Let's say in late Iron Age Britain, you see elites in Britain taking stuff from the Roman Empire across the sea and being buried with it to show their power that they could access those materials. Perhaps local elite Canaanites were very much being influenced by the Egyptians 
as evidenced by the the tomb architecture and the goods that they were buried with. Absolutely. That's exactly the way I look at it. I think it's too blurry. I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a couple of Egyptians there, but I'd also say that, you know, there are probably more Canaanites there, but these are Canaanites who have got access to this material, have knowledge of the way that Egyptians entertain and how they consume wine. And, you know, a Canaanite would consume wine in a very different way. They'd have um, a large jar. Um, they'd drink out of straws on this large jar. And there's some lovely um, pictures of Canaanites doing that, whereas Egyptians drinking wine in a more sort of refined way. So, yes, I think it's a total, total melting pot, a total hybridity of cultures there, you know, sort of these different people living together and borrowing things and they do share ideas and they do borrow things and copy them. Absolutely. It's one of the great joys of archaeology when you can see how culturally mixed an area was when you have all these artifacts from different areas of the world, you know, some 3000 years ago. Now, this is worthy of a podcast in its own right, but just to kind of wrap up the episode, as we reach the end of the Bronze Age, we get into the Iron Age in the first millennium BC this area, Gaza, it's already incredibly significant and its importance, it endures down through the next millennium yeah, as well. Absolutely. Um, sadly, the important phase, which, you know, especially for the Philistines and the Palestinians and the, you know, sort of what's going on there, is so hidden to us from us. So there was tiny bit of activity in the 1920s by a guy called Vivian Adams, um, who excavated on the north side of the tell of Gaza under the modern city of Gaza. And he found Philistine pottery there um, and also lower level sort of Bronze Age pottery. But we don't really, we really don't know anything about Gaza in that period. And it, you know, Gaza archaeologically goes silent until the fifth, sixth century excavations um, at Blokia by the French school, the Iron Age port. So there's a huge unknown history there. There's lots of stuff going on being excavated in the surrounding regions in Israel. You know, they, we know a lot about Philistines and Canaanites and Israelites and, and, and their ways of life and how things changed in the in the early Iron Age. But there's a, just a huge question mark for Gaza. We just get little hints in written documents that this area is there, that the Assyrians arrived in the 7th century, 8th century. and But archaeologically, we don't know. Louise, this has been a brilliant episode thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today thank you well there you go there was professor louise Steele talking all things the archaeology of gaza exploring what we know so far from the excavations that have occurred in the gaza strip over the past century and how much we still don't know about this area which has been hotly contested not just in recent history but also back in prehistory and ancient times too. I hope you enjoyed the episode and found it as eye-opening as I did recording it. That's all from me today, and I will see you in the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.